Hi ladies, welcome back. This week is Parsha's Kisisa, and it is also another special Parsha this week. We have a special Maftir, it's called Parsha's Para, and again, as a result of that, we have a special Haftorah. So because this week's Parsha is so relevant to Jewish history and identity and our spiritual footprint, I'm going to spend a bit more time explaining the Parsha and the special Maftir than I normally would because this week we're dealing with some very abstract and and difficult high-level concepts, so it might take a bit more time to explain. So I hope you'll bear with me, and I hope you'll still enjoy. Uh, so this week's Parsha comes from Sefer Shmos. We're still in the book of Exodus, chapters 30 through 34. The Parsha begins with the Pesukim that make up Parsha Shkalim, which is what we read about a few weeks ago in Parsha's Mishpatim, Reminder, this is the section where Hashem commands every grown man in Bnei Yisrael to give up a half shekel for the building of the Mishkan. Those half shekels were actually melted down and they were made into sockets which held the beams of the Mishkan, remember that portable temple-like structure, together while it was being used in the desert. Another extremely important thing that happens in this parsha is Hashem gives the recipe, so to speak, for the Ketores, or the incense offering, which the Mepharshim tell us is his is the offering that's most beloved to him. And um, all of this takes place while Moshe is still up on top of Harsinai receiving Torah. Everything's good. Everything's fine. And then the Bnei Yisrael that are standing at the foot of the mountain notice that the clock on Moshe's Arbaim Yom Arbaim Laila, the clock is starting to run out. In Parshas Mishpatim, we were told that Moshe would be on top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And... Towards the end of that time, the Bnei Yisrael start to doubt that Moshe is coming back. They start to think, what could have possibly happened to him up there? Is he okay? Did he die? They, they don't know what happened to him. So they panic, and they look for a replacement, quote-unquote, God. Um, we don't really understand this drive for idol worship because it's something that, thank God, in our generation we don't have. But the Bnei Yisrael felt this need to have something to worship, something to bow down to. And as a result of that, gold and jewelry were collected from all the Jews. It was melted down and molded into a golden calf, which the Jews began to worship and sacrifice to. Um, so let's think about this for a minute. This We know this is one of the most grave sins that, that happens while we're in the desert, but let, let's stop and think about what this really means. Only a few parshios ago, we promised God at Har Sinai that he would be our only God. We would have a special relationship with him. In a way, we just got married to God. And only a few weeks after our wedding, we're found cheating on our new spouse. That is really the core and the best muscle for what happens here, is that we just made this massive commitment to God. And just as quick, we turn around and we betray him. And that's why this sin is so serious. When Moshe starts coming down from the mountain with the tablets in his hands, he sees what's going on and he breaks them. And this event is often really misunderstood. A lot of people make this out that Moshe was angry at what he saw. And because of that, he broke the Luchot. Um, but that, that's, not really, that's not really why. We should view this as more of an act of compassion. Let's think about this. What Moshe is holding in his hands, the Luchos, are a representation of the covenant between the Bnei Yisrael and God. In a sense, they're like a contract. If Moshe breaks the contract, if he rips it up before the Bnei Yisrael even see it, before they can even really be chayav in it, it's as if they've broken a contract that they never really saw. So in this act of sort of 
compassion that Moshe has for the Bnei Yisrael. He destroys the contract in an effort to make their sin not seem so bad in the eyes of Hashem, even though it, it really was. Um, when this happens, Moshe then enlists Shevet Levi, the tribe of Levi, um, to persecute the idolatrous offenders. Around 3,000 people were put to death on that day. Moshe reascends Har Sinai to make, a new, to make an atonement for the sin that has just happened. Fast forward a bit, and Hashem gives Moshe a new set of tablets, a new set of luchos, and he proclaims his 13 attributes of mercy. I'm going to read these in English because there could be a halachic problem with saying them without a minion, so I'm just going to read them in English. Um, the two psukim, um, they say, Hashem passed before Moshe and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem, a God, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness. He extends his kindness to the thousandth generation. He forgives sin, transgression, and iniquity, but he does not remit all punishment. He visits the iniquity of parents upon children and their children's children upon the third and the fourth generations. Um, after this, Moshe receives a few other various mitzvahs, including destroying idolatry and Yisrael, observing the three pilgrimage festivals and not cooking milk and meat together. Moshe comes back down the mountain, literally beaming with light that he's reflecting from Hashem's face, and he begins to teach Torah to the Bnei Yisrael. So that's essentially the end of the Parsha. And then, like I said, this week we have a special maftir. It's called Parsha's Para. So this is our third in our series of the four special Parshios that lead up to Passover. And this Parsha discusses the Para Aduma, or the red heifer, which we'll see is designed as a sort of tikkun, a repair for the sin of the golden calf. This year, we have the unique opportunity to read this Parsha connected to Parsha's Kisisa, which is where the Cheta Egel takes place. Um, it's not like that every year. Sometimes Parsha's Para is off one or two Parshas. So this week, or sorry, this year, we have a unique opportunity to, to read them the same week in conjunction with each other. So how the para aduma, the red heifer, is a repair for the cheta egel is because we're using, in essence, the same thing we use to do the ultimate sin. We're taking it and we're using it to create the ultimate environment, the ultimate atmosphere for holiness, as we'll see when I, when I explain. So Parsha's para comes from Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, and it's quite long. It's the entire 19th parak of that sefer. Um, it's 22 psukim, and um, basically what it is, it describes the para aduma and how we can use it. So to us in the modern world, the, the idea of the words tuma and tahara, purity and impurity, are very abstract concepts. So abstract, in fact, that we don't even really have great English words to use to describe these concepts. We usually use purity for tahara and impurity for tuma, but again, the English words have this connotation of cleanliness or dirtiness or, or, or some physical form of, of dirt or uncleanliness, and that's not what it is at all. Purity and impurity is all about creating a certain set of circumstances within a person or within a place that Hashem has said, this is fit for my presence, or this is not fit for my presence. Um, it's especially abstract because the only elements of, of Tuma and Tahara that we really have around anymore is called Nida, and that's, that's the type of, of Tuma that comes from when a woman menstruates. 
that's really the only thing that we have left over. And all of the rules of that we don't even maintain anymore because we don't have a temple. So this, this might be a little hard for us to grasp, but it's extremely important for us to preserve these concepts so that we understand them when we have a temple again, please God, very soon. So the red heifer is all about removing what's called tumas hames. So the, the type of tumah, the type of impurity that you would contract upon yourself from touching or coming in close contact with a dead body. Um, Rav Hirsch says that this is the ultimate type of tumah. It's so severe because a dead body is completely and utterly physical. It is only physical. It has no soul in it. It has no spiritual element. It has nothing to distinguish it whatsoever from a dead animal. It's, it's completely physical. Um, so Parshas Para is all about giving us the procedure for removing that type of tumma, that type of impurity from a person. Essentially, this is very simplified, but the procedure is find a red heifer, which the Torah describes as perfect without blemish, even two black hairs on the red heifer, on its entire coat can deem it unfit for this ritual. So you have to find the perfect type of heifer, completely burn it, and then mix the ashes with water. And then while the person is in the seven-day period that it takes to remove the, the tuma of being in contact with a dead body from them, they have to have that water from the, the para sprinkled on them on the third and on the seventh day of their waiting period. And then they can go to the mikvah and become pure again. Um, at this point, once they're pure again, they can go back near the Mishkan, back near the temple, rejoin the camp of Bnei Yisrael. They won't spread their, their tumah to anybody else, and they can essentially resume their normal life again. So that is what Parsha's Parah is describing. The Haf Torah this week comes from Sefer Yechezkel, the book of Ezekiel in English, comes from Parak Lamed Vav, chapter 36. So the way that this relates to the Parsha of Para is because the Navi is describing how the Jewish people will be in a state of purity at the times of Mashiach, both ritual purity and purity from sin, which is a bit more abstract and a bit more difficult to define. Um, and this purity from sin can only be achieved through atonement for the, that sin. It's not as as procedural as Para Duma, but so in that way, it could be more, more difficult. So I'll give a little historical background for Yechezkel, like always, to orient us a bit. Yechezkel is one of the Nevi'im Rishonim, so one of the earlier Nevi'im. His prophecy begins just before the destruction of the first temple. He's prophesizing from around the Jewish years 3332 to 3352. In English years, that's around 430 BC. His contemporary Nevi'im were Tzephaniah and Yirmiyahu, and he is said to be a student of Yeshayahu, who we learned about a few weeks ago in Parshish Yisro. He lived in Yehuda, which remember when the, the kingdoms of Israel split, Yehuda is the southern kingdom, which is close to Jerusalem and close to the temple. And so Yechezkel is prophesizing after the kingdoms have split in two, and he's living in the south. Um, he's one of the very first people that when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and began to destroy the temple, he's one of the very first people that was exiled to Babylon. A lot of the core policy that the, the Babylonians had when they exiled the Jews was not only to depossess us of our temple, but also to deport us from our land, to detach us from our land. And um, Yehezkel was one of the first people in that, pro in that process. 
Um, his prophecies were while he was in Gullus in exile, were of great comfort to the Jewish people, because as we'll see, he has a lot to share from Hashem about what the final redemption will look like and what life will be like in the era of Mashiach. So this week's Haftorah is all about the Messianic era and the role that Jews will play in getting ourselves spiritually ready for that time. Like a lot of the Haftorahs that we've had in the last few weeks, um, this Haftorah is not so much of a narrative. It's prophecy that's coming straight from Hashem. It's not necessarily chronological. It's just a set of information. It's a set of circumstances that will happen. So I'll be sharing the main highlights of that. So the, the Haftorah starts off with Hashem reminding us what exactly the sins were that we did that caused us to land in Gullus, in exile. Uh, he commands Yehezkel to tell the Jews that a great redemption is coming. Um, but before Hashem tells us all the good stuff, he reminds us in Pasuk Chaf Beis, Lo l'manchem ani Beis Yisrael ki im l'shem kadshi asher chilaltem v'agoyim asher batem sham. Not for your sake will I act, Jews, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations um, to which you have come. He's reminding us that not through our own merit necessarily is this going to come about, but because he will have a desire to make his name known and make his name sanctified among the people of the world. The next Pasuk, Hashem tells um, the Jews through Yechezkel that all the good that's coming their way is again for the sake of sanctifying his name and for his Kedusha to be manifest in the world. He says that very explicitly in the next Pasuk. Then he makes several promises. He'll gather in all the exile. He will put a new spirit into us. We'll see what that means a little bit later. Um, he, that we will dwell in the land that he promised to our fathers so that we'll come back to B'nai Yisrael, sorry, to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, we'll experience great prosperity there. There will be lots of food. The harvest will be good. We won't see famine. And most importantly, perhaps, we'll have ultimate clarity. We'll realize that our idolatrous ways were wrong, that all the sins that we were committing before were wrong, and we will feel guilt for them. And we'll understand that we have had to do tshuva because we were wrong in the first place. I think at the end, there's a really beautiful line. Um, I'm just going to read it in English for time's sake. Um, Hashem says, Yerushalayim will be, fi- will be filled with flocks of sheep for korbanos, um, during her festivals, and so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. And they, everybody, all the nations of the world, will know that I am Hashem, that I am the one God. So that's, that's the content of the Haftorah. And now I'd like to speak a little bit about what we can take for our lives. So in Pasuk Chaf He, Pasuk 25, Hashem says, he says, I'll sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurity and from your idols. Um, so Rashi and the Mitzvah David agree that the water referred to in this Pasuk refers to the water of the Para Aduma. So this is a key element of the, the Messianic era is that we have to have para aduma, we have to have this process back in place. Um, further, in the second Pasuk of the Haftorah, Hashem compares the Jews' sins to the impurity of a menstruating woman. So we see this very apparent analogy being made between our sins and between being ritually impure. Um, the Ramban on Pasuk 26 teaches us that when Hashem says, 
Vehasirosi es lev haeven mi vasar chem, venasasi lechem lev basar. That that line, when Hashem says, I will remove the stone heart from your flesh and I will put in its place a heart of, he says, lev basar. I will give you a heart of flesh. He says, I'll remove the stone heart from you and I'll give you a real heart. Um, the Ramban tells us that that means our single-minded desire in the times of Mashiach will be similar to that of the Jewish people in the first 40 days that we were standing at Har Sinai. Our single-minded desire will be to get as close to Hashem as we can possibly be. We will detach ourselves from that desire to physically manifest our our love for Hashem. We will just want to be with Him and we will not have a risk of doing something like Cheta Egel again. So all this accumulates in a teaching um, in the Gemara. I'm sorry, I don't have that source to, to cite off the top of my head right now. But our rabbis teach that just as the redemption of Pesach took place in the month of Nisan, Again, this is part of the reason why we read Parshas Para before Nisan. Um, so too, will the final redemption in the era of Mashiach will begin in Nisan. So another reason that we have this, this Parsha of Para coming before Nisan is because in order for us to bring the Korban Pesach, let's say, please God, that Mashiach does come when this Nisan comes in, we need to be reminded of what the procedure exactly is to get us in the state of ritual purity that we need to be in before we can bring that Korban Pesach up come Pesach time. So um, this might have all seemed relatively esoteric, um, but I think that as a woman uh, leading up to Pesach can be, at times, it can seem very overtly materialistic. All we know is okay, I have to clean, I have to kosher, I have to line everything with foil, I have to make sure everything is just so. And it can be very easy for us to get detached from why we're doing all of this in the first place, and we can just get lost. So although this this Parsha and this Haftor can seem a little bit esoteric, I think that this is a time of year when we need a little bit of help floating up into the clouds, if you will. We need a little bit of help reminding ourselves what the end game is here. The end game of Pesach is remembering that the month of Nisan is all about Geula. And the redemption that Hashem did for us in Mitzrayim happened in Nisan. The one he is sure to do again for us in the future is in Nisan. And for all we know, the Nisan that's coming in about two weeks could be the Nisan that we've been looking forward to for all of Jewish history. Um, so my bracha to you ladies, as Purim has passed, and as, although we might not want to talk about it, Pesach is coming, is that throughout these next couple of weeks, we should just remember why it is that we're doing all of this in the first place. We should remember what the spiritual implications and impact is of all of our preparation and all of our work, and that you should also find time to study and to learn and to put in work on yourself and do sort of the, the spiritual pursuits that you want um, in addition to the physical preparation. So um, as always, please feel free to let me know what you thought of our little shear today. Um, if you have questions, anything at all, please be in touch. And I'm um, looking forward to next week.
Have a wonderful Shabbos, everybody.